there's very blurred lines between what an engineer, a scientist, and an analyst is because they're they're relatively new in the industry. So being able to understand exactly how to use them, I would argue, is more important than just necessarily having them. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to episode 73. Today, we're talking about Industry 4.0 trends and data that actually matters. Our guest is Jeff Winter, who is an industry executive for manufacturing with Microsoft. And he's ultimately an advisor that helps manufacturers across the U.S. digitally transform at scale. But that's not where Jeff's industry involvement stops. In fact, I've gotten to know him over the past year through a handful of different organizations within the Industry 4.0 community. He's also on the leadership committee for the Smart Manufacturing and IIoT division of ISA, the International Society of Automation. He's a registered expert for IEC, and he's part of Purdue University's Smart Manufacturing Advisory Board. So, Jeff knows and has seen a few things, and here's what you can expect from today's show as a result. First, we're going to talk about data, the types of data that are being generated out there, and ultimately, if and how it's being utilized. Second, we're going to talk about the Internet of Things, IoT. We're going to talk about trends and statistics that Jeff has found interesting lately, as well as measures of success in IoT initiatives. This will lead us to the last topic we're going to cover, which is people and digital transformation. A lot of great insights here as to how digital transformations are going at companies, if they're working, and ultimately how people feel about them within those organizations. If you want to access any of the resources we talk about today, you can do that over at Manufacturing happyhour.com slash 73 for the show notes for this episode. And since we were just talking about community, I should also mention that if you want to take part in conversations like this, you should make sure to join our Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community on LinkedIn. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. There are over 500 manufacturing leaders like Jeff in that group. Highly recommend you check that out today. With that, let's get into today's conversation. It's time for a Manufacturing Happy Hour appropriate intro to our discussion with Jeff. All right, Jeff Winter. Been looking forward to this one for a while. Likewise, likewise. Good to have you on the show, and, and as we always have to start on Manufacturing Happy Hour, the first question is, we were having this conversation in person over a beverage. Where would that be? Describe describe the place. Oh, absolutely, and I, I already know the answer to it. There is a, a uh, burger joint in Naperville, Illinois, which is where I live, called Empire. It's a very popular place that has very eclectic types of uh, burgers, and they also have a huge beer list. So that is probably one of my favorite restaurants uh, just to casually meet with people. And so if anyone's ever in Naperville, that's where I'll meet you. So I, I, I think I can picture the the good beer list, particularly for like a northern Illinois bar, right? Like I'm sure there's some three Floyds on there, but you just yep. you said eclectic burgers. So 
what what qualifies as an eclectic burger just out of curiosity i mean the the things that they put on their burgers are not typical stuff that you find so they have one burger for example that that uh has chorizo in with the actual hamburger meat itself Mm. like that i've never seen before i mean outside of just like having a, a fried egg which is something you don't normally see uh, sometimes you see that, but the the types of cheeses that they'll put on the burger, like one of my love has has goat cheese, um, very much on it. They use pretzel buns as something that's entirely different okay. to begin with. There, so um, they they mix them with other meals as a part of it. So they have one called the Big Dipper, where you actually dip it in the au jus sauce that you put, you know, Italian beef in. So nice, just non traditional burgers. You don't go there just to get a, a normal burger. I love that you described half the menu for me rather than just like one burger. This is, we're off to a good start. So let's say we're, we're at empire. We're having burgers. We're having brews. So first question, we'll, we'll keep it basic to start. Like we're, we're having, having a beverage. So as the guy who likes industry statistics and trends, which do you find to be most fascinating right now? That, that's a great question. I come across new trends and statistics all the time. I, I don't know why I'm so drawn to them, but I am. I feel like they help with the stories that I tell and, and shift the stories that I tell. Probably one of the ones I most recently learned about that was very fascinating to me was around the, the growing gap between the amount of data that's generated and the data storage capability. We're at a point now where the demand for data storage is actually double the supply of data storage. And it's an all-time high right now. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, there was one of the statistics was from Statista, where they said that in 2020, over 64 zettabytes of data was created. I didn't know what a zettabyte was a few weeks ago. All right. And if I think I got my math right, that is 10 to the 21st power of bytes, or in a more comprehensible manner, 1 billion terabytes. All right. And that's how much data was created in 2020 alone. And I like mm-hmm. uh, there's there's something that Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, said that I think helps put this in perspective. He said, according, um, if you look at all the data that has been created since the beginning of humanity to 2003, all right, all of humanity till 2003, they estimate that's five exabytes worth of data, which is point five percent of one zettabyte so less than one percent of a zettabyte was created in all of humanity up till 2003 and in 2020 we created 64 zettabytes like that is just the the amount of information that is being produced is is unfathomable now that same study also said that a far majority of that data is not actually being kept they estimate mm. that uh, only 2% of data that was produced in 2020 was actually carried over to 2021. So most of the data just, just goes away. They also estimate that, um, I think they said 6.7 uh, zettabytes is the total capacity for all storage worldwide. So if okay. you kind of summarize this, 64 zettabytes is about what we're, we're producing. Okay. Six and a half, six point seven percent is what we have. So that's a 10, 10 times gap in the data generated versus the, the data available. But the demand is also increasing. We're at double right now, the demand for the supply, and that's at an all-time high. So that means we're generating more data and we're wanting to store more data on top of that. 
So it really starts to beg the question around what you do with your data strategy or do you have one? Because you could either be wasting a lot of money on collecting unnecessary data or on storing data that you don't need mm-hmm. to. So it's it's kind of a fascinating trend I see. It's just the data storage gap between oh, oh. what's generated and what's uh, stored. Yeah, a, a, a couple things come to mind there. First, I have to say burgers, brews, and bites is what we're doing today <laughs> based on based on that first answer. I, like I couldn't it. couldn't pass up the opportunity for a pun. But you're saying like most of the data go goes away, right? So is it fair to say that this is wasted data, useless data? How go into that a little bit more cuz if if a lot of that just disappears, that's where my head's at, right? Why is it a lot of this not being utilized? So it's a great question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I could speculate mm-hmm. on on what I think the answer is, um, mm-hmm. but I don't know why it goes all news because that study didn't really state all the different types of data. They broke it up into to major sure. types, but not what exactly was collected. So you have to think, um, IoT is one of the biggest proliferations of the ability to create data. So we're mm-hmm. generating a ton of it. And if you don't mm-hmm. have a storage mechanism uh, connected to it, maybe you're experimenting or maybe you're not needing to store it. You're just looking for real-time feedback to just give you alerts and that's it. Um, then it may not need to be stored. I mean, I would argue not all data you generate needs to be stored. Mm-hmm. So the strategy for what you do store is a big part of what you need to figure out, especially as more and more and more data is just being generated. We we talked a little bit about this before we jumped on the recording, right? When we were chatting earlier this week, you talked about like the types of data being generated. Can you go into that a bit more so people know what's out there? And then let's get in some actions that people can do around that. Sure. So I, uh, I found that there are two big trends around the types of data that is being generated and what's happening with them. The first is structured versus unstructured Mm -hmm. data. And the second is real data versus synthetic data. So let's go over the the structured versus the the unstructured first. So structured data is is highly specific and it's stored in a predefined format. This is typically categorized as like quantitative data, you know, so numbers and values. It's stuff that's easily searchable or manipulatable. You can think of it like anything that most people use Excel for, anything that you put in there. That's structured Mm -hmm. data. Then there's unstructured data. And unstructured data is anything that can't easily be processed or analyzed by conventional you know, data tools uh, that are out there. So this typically consists of audio files, images, videos, social media posts, that sort of stuff. It's not really easily dissectable and categorizable. So that's unstructured data. All right. So those are the two main differences. But what most people don't realize is that roughly 80% now of data generated by enterprises is unstructured Mm -hmm. data. 80%. And that number is going up. But most companies are actually putting their data strategy around the structured data because that's simple, easy to understand. Most people know how to navigate Excel. Most people do not you know, know how to navigate thousands and thousands and thousands or millions of photos is an example mm-hmm. to look for what they want. So that's one of the areas is the structured versus unstructured data and the sheer in- increase in unstructured data that's being used and not capitalized on by most companies. The other is real and uh, and synthetic data. So real data is any data that is obtained direct from measurement. In mm-hmm. the manufacturing world, most of that would be sensors, but in 
all the rest of the world. It could be generated from other places. And there's, there's three main aspects to real data that, uh, that constrain your ability to collect data. There's cost. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just very expensive to get the data yep. that you want. Number two um, is logistics. Sometimes it's just very difficult to actually get the data that you want. And th third is privacy. Not all the data you want to collect, you can or should collect. But those are the limitations on the, the real data that is being collected. And that is, that's most of the data that's out there right now. Synthetic data is any data that is generated by a rule or a statistical model or simulation mm -hmm. or any other technique. It's not directly um, collected, it's created. And the interesting trend there is that by 2030, at least, um, who's it? Uh, according to Gartner, Bad. half of all of our data is going to be synthetic data. So you're going to have half of your data be real data and half of it be synthetic. Right now, it's only a fraction mm -hmm. of that that is synthetic data. So that you know gets back to your data strategy as well. If you're going to have a lot of unstructured data and a lot of mm -hmm. synthetic data, do you really know what you're doing with all that data? Are you collecting the, the right data, using the right data, or are you just dismissing or wasting a lot of it as part of it? So those are the two big trends I'm seeing in terms of the types of data and kind of where they're headed. So a, a couple things. I'm going to do a quick recap. So structured versus unstructured. Easy way to think of structured. It's predefined the type of thing that you'd have in, in Excel. Synthetic generated by like statistical models or a rule, etc. Um, from what I heard there. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. That's yeah, that's that's synthetic. But um, I jumped around there. Uh, unstructured versus structured was what it was supposed to be. So unstructured is audio images and and things things along those lines that's 80 percent of data right now um, generated by enterprises yes generated by enterprises good clarification and then back to synthetic versus real since synthetic was from statistical models and rules whereas real i mean it's what it says right it's measurements it's sensor data etc particularly for the manufacturers out there so that was my recap my question is now you've told me that people need data analysts as a result of this, right? Just based on the type of data and how it's increasing. Why do they need data analysts? What do you do with all the data? <laughs> and yeah. I would argue it's not just data analysts. You need, I'm just going to call it more broadly, data people. All right. Okay. And with that, there's data engineers, there's data scientists, there's data analysts. And as part of your mm -hmm. company's overall data strategy, which you absolutely should have to understand what are you, what information do you want or what are you trying to find out? That'll kind of work its way backwards to the roles that you need within the organization to support the, the generation of that data, the analysis of that data, you know, the maintenance and management of that data. So depending on, you know, which is more important may decide which role becomes more important. Uh, data analyst is the one that typically links most to the business decisions. And they're the one that tries to, generally speaking, connect the dots between the insights generated by the data scientists and the actual business case. So they're the ones that should help mm. shape the business by going, okay, now they have all these uh, reports that have been cleaned up and I can understand them. I can manipulate them. Thanks, data scientists. Now, how do I link that towards a decision that our company is going to make, whether it's an investment in a new product, a shift in a feature, or whatever it is that your company is going to do? And that 
that data analyst or business analyst is the one that has to have a good acumen of business and a good understanding of what the, the company's objectives are and kind of link that data to prove or disprove a particular you know, investment or initiative that the company is looking to make. So usually data analysts are the most public facing because they're the ones that are actually creating the story and presenting mm -hmm. the data to the leaders of the company, if that makes sense. Well, to me, it, the, the biggest thing that sticks out there is data, data analysts are the ones that are most tied to the business decisions, right? And that's ultimately what companies want from data is to make a better decision with their manufacturing, their operation, supply chain, whatever it might be. Are, are most companies at this point where they have that type of talent or at least what are, uh, I, we don't need a firm statistic, right? But are you seeing that more companies are on board, not enough are there. What's your perception? So I'd, I don't have any statistics on that, but from what I have seen, if you look at World Economic Forum posted the, the most, the fastest growing positions out there and data analyst, data scientist is, is number one. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. AI ML is number two, big data is number three. All of them are kind of related to either analyst, scientist or engineer, all related to data. It means that people recognize that they need them. But knowing what you need them for is entirely different. And once again, if you don't have that data strategy, you might just be arbitrarily hiring one of these people and not necessarily knowing how exactly to utilize them. In fact, the, the blur, there's very blurred lines between what an engineer, a scientist, and an analyst is because they're, they're relatively new in the industry. So being able mm -hmm. to understand exactly how to use them, I would argue is more important than just necessarily having them. But if you don't have one on staff, you're definitely not using them at all. I mean, there are some companies even out there that use what's called like a, a citizen data scientist, or you, you end up um, a citizen, either data scientist or data analyst, where you end up more spreading the knowledge of data generation, data consumption, and data analysis amongst a lot of people, where it becomes a skill of most of the people in the organization, rather than just having a few people that bury their head down and that's all they do all day. Now there's pros, you know, pros and cons to each of them, but the fact is companies are generating more data. Most people mm -hmm. aren't taking advantage of the data they're currently generating, let alone if you actually sit down and go, what data do I want to generate so that I can evaluate the business you know, objectives or business questions that I'm actually trying to answer? So that's what I'd view as like step two. Step one is just get a handle on what you're generating. It's already yeah. there. Um, do you even know what it is? Are you taking advantage of what's there? We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. If you're an equipment manufacturer, distributor, or dealer of industrial equipment, and you're looking to accelerate your profits through online sales, you're going to want to get to know this week's sponsor. Gen Alpha Technologies makes it easier for companies like you to do business through one of the most robust e-commerce platforms for the B2B industrial world. Let's be honest, a lot of manufacturers are still looking for ways to increase market share. They want to deliver a better, an exceptional level of customer service, and they are still looking to execute a digital transformation that's powered by e-commerce. Gen Alpha can be your partner that helps you accomplish all of these things. What I love about Gen Alpha is that unlike other e-commerce providers, the team over at Gen Alpha has been in your shoes. They've lived and breathed manufacturing and heavy industry. They ask the difficult and necessary questions because they know the questions to ask. 
If you like what you're hearing, make sure to head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash genalpha to listen to our interview with their president and COO, Christina Harrington. There, you can find a direct link to their e-commerce readiness assessment, or you can check them out for yourself at genalpha.com. Gen Alpha understands firsthand the promise that manufacturers have to fulfill when helping their customers keep equipment running. That's why they're not only your software provider, but also your business partner. That's Gen Alpha Technologies. And now, back to today's episode. Awesome. Well, it should be no surprise that as data is increasing, the jobs for data analysts, data scientists, etc., are increasing as well. I'm going to go back to a term that you mentioned earlier that gets mentioned on this show all the time, IoT. What about it? What trends are, and statistics have you found interesting in the area of Internet of Things specifically? Sure. And that's, uh, it's, I don't know if it's just because of uh, passion or circumstance, but I end up often getting the most statistics and trends related to that subject. I think it just captures a lot of people's attention. Mm -hmm. It's also, it's also palpable. It's related to things that are very specific that you can buy and it crosses a lot of industries. So I'm not going to go over like some of the big ones that most people are aware of, like IOT is increasing, you know, in its usage and its spend (laughs) that everyone already knows. But uh, there was actually a study that came out just uh, a few months ago by IoT Analytics, and this is kind of their world that they live in, that I really enjoyed. So they just produced one. It's like this very detailed 430-page study around kind of what's happening in the market of just specifically IoT. And one of the big takeaways that I got out of that study is they organized the use cases of IoT into 48 different use cases. And what they found is not only is, you know, the the spend and use of IoT going up, but they were able to identify where it's going up and the proportion of them. So, for example, the big thing that I found fascinating is the number of use cases is actually increasing. So what they found is that the average number of use cases that a company has in 2021 is eight. So eight of those 48 uh, use cases that they came up with is the average number that a company is using it for. Now, the part that actually I was surprised by is the industry that has the highest use cases is oil, um, oil and gas and energy. They're actually sure. ahead of everyone else with an average of 15 use cases. That, that actually surprised me. I didn't expect that. Now, hmm. with those use cases, though, if you kind of aggregate them into different buckets, uh, and you look at the top 10 that they have. So this is in, um, in accordance to adoption rate, the, the percentage of companies that are actually you know, doing that particular use case. Six of the top 10 are directly related to increasing operations, making smart operations, improving a company's you know, production process or manufacturing process or enhancing maintenance operations. Anything operation related is six of the top 10 use cases. And we're not talking just manufacturing here. We're talking all industries everywhere, which is crazy to think that that that's the most used reason, even in retail, in energy, mm-hmm. in other sectors, is improving your production and your operations. Uh, three of the top 10 are related to supply chain, and just one is actually related to smart products, which that was kind of yeah. surprising to know kind of where people are, um, are using IoT. 
Um, there was another study, and this one's kind of interesting, that was actually done by Microsoft, and it's called uh, IoT Signals, and they just produced this a couple months ago. And they mm -hmm. had a couple different set of statistics that was kind of looking at different things that I found very fascinating. So what they, they, um, they showed is that in 2020, the number one metric used to measure success of IoT adoption and IoT mm -hmm. implementation was cost cutting. So they measured yeah. the success of their IoT based off of how much cost it reduced. And that's interesting. Yeah. But in 2021, just one year later, that cost cutting was the third most reason. The first was actually quality and second was security. So quality yeah. and security were the two main measures of success for IOT projects and IOT adoption. That's interesting to know. That's how they're grading success is that security is up there for a grading, a measure of success. Now, they also tracked the reasons why people adopted IOT. And if you look mm -hmm. at that, the number one reason why uh, manufacturers at least adopted IOT was quality. And the second yep. was automation, actually helping with automation. Security is not one of the top 10 reasons why companies are adopting IoT, yet it's one of the measures of success. So quality is the number one reason and the number one measure. But security is not a reason, it's a measure. And that yeah, was a fascinating part for me. Th there's, there's some interest because I, I know the reports you're talking about. I was looking at them before this interview. So a, a quick recap on some of those. Of the 48 different use cases, you know, most companies just said eight are leveraging those use cases and oil and gas is using 15. I I guess I'm a little less surprised on that based on my time out in the field, right? If you're trying to manage a bunch of wells or a fleet that's spread across a wide area, I could see where you might leverage IoT technologies in that area. A couple of things I did find fascinating from this report as well. Um, I'm glad you talked about the cost cutting, right? Because that, 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 that was surprising too. Another one is, and, and by the way, for the folks listening, Jeff posts all this stuff on LinkedIn. So you want to be following Jeff on LinkedIn to see these on a regular basis. But what I'm surprised in terms of measurement success in IoT, one that really jumps out is why isn't direct impact to increased revenue one of those? That's the mo one of the most surprising to me on there. You'd think people would want to tie it to some sort of increase in the revenue that they're bringing in. I, I would agree with you. I would think that if you're looking at cost as a reason that the flip side of that is increased revenue. I mean, those are kind of two different sides to, to the same coin, if you want to call it. And yes, mm -hmm. I'm surprised that that's not higher up there as well. It kind of, um, I would love to learn more as the, the reason as to why it's not on there. Because I would think that cost reduction, uh, increased revenue would be two main reasons and probably innovation would be a third. Like you're able to do something new that you weren't able to do. And, and, and I would say for those listening, if you have a reason as to why you think that is, or if you know, hit us up on LinkedIn or Twitter, MFG happy hour, um, is the handle there. We'd love to keep that conversation going after the interview. Another thing that jumped out and maybe this one's less surprising to me, um, but I want to get your take on it. When you look at that um, list from IoT analytics, the IoT use cases, remote monitoring, I think, is at the top. Um, remote it's monitoring and then right below it is is remote control as well. Does that surprise you or does that that make sense to you? 
No, it, it doesn't surprise me at all. I had to look into it a little bit more as to kind of why they separated the two. Because yes, number mm-hmm. one was remote read-only monitoring. And then yeah. it was, I don't know what number, three, four, but a few down. It was the exact same thing, but it was read-write. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as I know, the reason that they were separated is because there, there is a difference in the adoption of them. Because the easiest and simplest application to use IoT is to just collect the information for monitoring. It's yeah. a lot more of a, um, a difficult investment to actually start to command, uh, send commands to IoT devices. That's now when security really gets factored in significantly more because to read stuff is a lot different than to actually control it. So the adoption rate is lower for that. And that's part of the reason why they separated them out. But the ability just to go, I've got a whole bunch of devices. I want to know their state. And what's happening is one of the simplest and easiest applications to deploy for for IoT. Yeah, it. I mean, that makes sense to me, especially as, you know, someone that's been in the manufacturing world where there are equipment manufacturers that want to monitor what's going on with their customers' equipment. And quite frankly, they they customers like that too, right? They end users like having someone that knows the equipment, having visibility to it. So it it made sense to me. I wanted to get your take on it as well. The last big topic for this conversation I want to bring up is the people side of IoT and digital transformation, because this is this is another one where very bluntly, I think we've seen it in the stats, um, a lot of digital transformation statistics aren't great, like right off the bat in terms of the success of a digital oh, transformation. Yes. Why? Why is that? <laughs> I, th- I mean, there are books written about that exact topic. I think a lot of people are looking to, uh, to understand that. So if you look at, I think it was PTC that did this study that said uh, just this last year that 41% of manufacturers have either completed or rolling out their digital transformation journey, which means that 59% are figuring it out. Like they, they don't yeah. really know what they're planning on doing. Um, now, unfortunately, it's not the same group that did the statistics, but the, the most famous one that I at least know of is um, Boston Consulting Group. They're the ones mm-hmm. that had this big article on this, the 70% of digital transformation initiatives, they fall short of their objectives, or yeah. that's a nice word of saying, saying failed. Um, yeah. And that's, that's crazy to know that you know only a fraction of people have implemented or rolled out their digital transformation, and a vast majority of those could be chalked up as non-successful. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a, it's hard to break down the reasons for some of this. I mean, I've tried to do a good job of analyzing and reading a lot of the stuff that's out there and from my own personal experience. And I, I do agree that there, in my opinion, there's, there's two primary reasons. And then there's like four or five that I've come up with that are secondary, but they feed into those two primary reasons. Um, the first one is, is kind of a, it sounds simple, but you'd be surprised at how often it occurs is that most digital transformation initiatives don't actually drive transformation. See, what happens is you end up getting resources that are kind of misdirected towards a technology initiative, and they don't really address a, a performance constraint. And so what that means is it just results in like a small incremental improvement. And that doesn't change much. I mean, that you could argue is continuous improvement. It's good. Mm -hmm. You bought Mm -hmm. some new technology and you're doing something better, but it doesn't Mm -hmm. fundamentally change the way that your business operates. In order to do a a digital transformation, you're uprooting a lot of your company, the way that you do things. And that's 
scary for some. It's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for everyone, but um, the, the, the way that people are approaching digital transformation is attempting to be safe. And when you're attempting to be safe, you either fail in your objective, but you may go, oh, I made an incremental improvement. So you could argue, well, that it did something better, but it didn't achieve what we wanted it to. And the next biggest thing is not investing in the right culture. I mean, I like this kind of saying that kind of summarizes up, which says, simply put, technology is the tool, people are the focus, and more value is the outcome of digital transformation. So that really means that your people should be your focus. And when you think about a, a big transformation, like a digital transformation, if you're successful at it, you are completely changing the way your company operates your business mm -hmm. models, like everything that your company does, which means that most processes and most activities of most employees are going to change. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it that way, you need to put as much effort, as much time, as much energy, maybe even as much money into making sure that you're building and investing in the right culture, not mm -hmm. just the technology implementation. And I don't just mean upskilling and training people. I mean, investing in the right culture to have the right mindset to embrace and adopt the change that occurs with digital transformation. It's not just about yeah. we change this process to this one. You're fundamentally changing the way that you think about how you even address these things. You're getting to a more agile, you know, way of thinking. You're you're getting into faster iteratives. You need to build in how you even address technology, not just what you do with a technology, but how you address any technology, you know, how you address innovation. And you mm -hmm. need to build that into the culture so that when a year, two years, three years down the road, a new cool technology comes out, your company's already ready and has a process for how to how to embrace it, how to test it, how to in, you know integrate it into your company. And you're not just going through the whole thing all over again because some new transformative technology came out. The transformation needs to be in your company. So those are the yeah. two biggest ones that I have. I, I heard a couple things there. I, I love that quote about people, technology, and value. One, a couple things that jump out, right? Uh, about playing it safe, right? Part of it comes with being willing to take risks and make mistakes. Um, I also love that you bring up that aspect about, yeah, sometimes you'll implement the technology and you'll get maybe an incremental improvement, but you're not getting a transformation, right? And I think that's where a lot of us, whether we're talking cybersecurity, whether we're talking about um, digital transformation like we are today, it's that people, processes, and technology. Technology is kind of the last piece of that puzzle right there that that you need to have, like you said, investing in the right culture to make it possible. The the, the last question I have on this topic is something that, that stuck out was you had said a lot of people self-identify these initiatives as failures, right? It's not because these initiatives were actually macro failures. Sometimes they get good results, but um, a lot of people are self-identifying them as not being successful. Are we being too harsh on ourselves? What do you think? Um, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, because you have to think the only way to identify a attempted digital transformation as a failure is through self-identification. It's, it's through mm -hmm. surveys of did it meet expectations? Did it exceed it? Did it did it fall short? So you ultimately have to be able to identify and evaluate that yourself. Did we meet what we sought out to meet? And mm -hmm. so do I think that we're being too harsh on ourselves? I, I would I would hope not, because otherwise you might be trying to sugarcoat something that isn't yeah. 
isn't what it really is meant to be. And that's where clear transformation objectives is actually a very difficult thing for people to do because they try and take this transformation idea and they come up with some lofty you know, goal that they're looking to do. Most companies have that kind of lofty goal or two that they're looking to do, but then they compartmentalize it and try to pick it off into individual technologies for individual pilots that then have their own individual goals associated with it. So they can go, ah, that pilot worked. And therefore, you know, we should roll it out everywhere. And then it gets really difficult to actually identify if that pilot is linking back to the main business objective that you were really trying to get because you wanted to try and turn it into this very small test of one little safe thing without, you know, completely, um, you know, letting go of your old technology and your old your old ways, your old processes, which is a big deal. So when you get to that little pilot, it's very difficult for people to move beyond it because they look and go, huh, well, we increased this by 5% or decreased this by 3%. But how did that meet what we were trying to ultimately do as a company? And now it's yeah. it's very disconnected from that. And that's, in one of my opinions, where I think people recognize it too late is to go, ooh, this didn't do what we wanted. It may have done something good, but it didn't do what we wanted. Yeah. You know, as I reflect on that answer and, and the question in general, I'm actually kind of happy about the way that's going right now is it means people are holding themselves to a high standard, right? They're not saying, well, hey, yeah, we may have had these good things happen as a result of it, but maybe it ends up being a micro transformation when they were really looking for that true transformation. So I appreciate the insights there. We're at the end of our burgers, theoretically, the end of our beers, theoretically. So I got got one more question for you. And and this is a tweak on the way I usually ask this question. But since we're talking about trends and statistics today, what do you wish you had statistics on as well that we didn't get to talk about today? Oh, that's 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 a great question. I love that that twist on this. So I, I have one that I know. Uh, that I really want. I don't know if other people care about it, but the reason I want it so bad is because I can't find it at all, anything close to being able to answer it. So I made a post recently about a uh, a fairly famous quote by by John Chambers, the the former chairman of of Cisco, and he said this back in um, 2015, about five years ago. So a little bit close to that. And he said, at least 40% of all businesses are going to die in the next 10 years if they don't figure out how to change their entire company to accommodate new technologies. And that was a famous quote that kind of went around and it, it, it made a lot of buzz with a lot of people to get them to think, oh gosh, am I going to be one of those companies that dies if, if I don't adopt technology? I can't find out if it's true or not. And now that we're like halfway into his prediction, I want to be able to look and go, well, you know, we're on track uh, to have 40% of companies die. I would love to know if that actually did come true. If there are instances that we can have at a at a statistical level to show the failure to adopt technology resulted in, uh, at worst case, bankruptcy, but uh, lesser mm-hmm. case, just going from being a market leader to, you know, a a fourth tier, fifth tier company. We hear about the big companies out there. You know, everyone can name the the big companies over the past 15 years or so that have uh, failed to, to re-innovate, but we don't know mm-hmm. at a statistical level is 40% or are 40% of companies, you know, going to fail? Or can we say that, you know, this many did fail because they just didn't adopt at a certain time and they kind of went kaput? 
Well, we gave the call to action earlier that uh, if you can fill in the gaps with some of the stats we talked about today, we'd love to hear it on social media. Um, and on that note, Jeff, what's the best spot to connect with you? The best spot, definitely LinkedIn. All right. Well, I encourage you to connect with Jeff Winter on LinkedIn. Continue this conversation here. We've only, I mean, there's a ton of stats and trends out there. We've only covered a handful today. But Jeff, I appreciate you taking us on an audio trip to Naperville for burgers and beer and, and taking, taking us through. This has been great having you on the show. It's a great burger and a great beer. I enjoyed it. Cheers, everyone. Hey, thanks for listening, and a big thanks to Jeff for jumping on today's show. If you want to access other notes from today's show, you can do that over at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 73 for the show notes for this episode, which is one of the easiest spots to link up with Jeff. There's going to be a link to his LinkedIn on that page. You definitely want to connect with him over there. As we wrap up, I want to thank our sponsor for today, Gen Alpha the premier e-commerce platform for dealers, distributors, and equipment manufacturers in the manufacturing world. If you want to learn more about them, you can head back to episode 34 for our interview with Christina Harrington, their COO. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash genalpha. And with that, that is a wrap for today's episode, or it's almost a wrap for today's episode. I'm going to remind you to join the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community over on LinkedIn, over 500 manufacturing leaders there. We'd love to have you as a part of that conversation. Manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community will take you right there. And with that, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.